Just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nimmer's Netter. Just talking to teachers. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's Nailers Natter. And this week's guest on the podcast is Mark Roberts. So Mark Roberts is Director of Research at a school in Northern Ireland. Previously, he has worked at schools in Devon and Manchester. Mark writes books and articles about teaching and studying English and is also a frequent contributor to TES on subjects including pedagogy, behaviour, leadership and educational research. And The Boy Question is the book that we are looking at through this week. And following on from the huge success of Boys Don't Try, and if you check out a previous podcast with the co-author of Boys Don't Try, Matt Pinkett, um, you can find that on our show page. So following on from the success of that book, this essential new book answers nine key questions about how teachers and schools can best tackle boys' academic underperformance. For decades, schools have grappled with the most significant barriers to male academic success. A lack of motivation to succeed, poor attitudes to learning, lower literacy levels and a reluctance to read for pleasure or write at length. In this compelling book, Mark Roberts provides clear answers about how teachers can tackle the boy question. Each chapter answers a frequently asked question about how best to teach boys, outlining the issue and demonstrating what can be done about it. Informed by a wealth of research and the author's personal experience of successfully teaching boys, this book offers an abundance of practical advice for the busy classroom teacher. It will shine a light on what makes boys tick and how we can design effective curriculums to ensure that they can best acquire powerful knowledge. And again, if you're more interested in powerful knowledge, then you can look back at the shows for conversations with um, Professor Michael Young, and you can also look at our interview with E.D. Hirsch. And to finish off with practical advice and examples to help schools address uh, anti-school attitudes and stem the cycle of boys' underachievement, this is an essential read for all teachers and school leaders. So I'm looking forward to handing over now to my interview with Mark Roberts. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Okay, so hello Mark and welcome to Nailers Natter. Thanks Phil, it's an absolute pleasure to be uh, speaking with you. Right, and we're just talking off air, so you're on summer holidays already, so just to timestamp this, it's the night before the summer holidays for me, but Mark's already relaxed and ready, and looking yeah, tanned and, and relaxed, excellent. I know, everyone will hate me um, for that, but yeah, we've managed to finish a bit early. Fantastic, right, so we'll just ease you into the podcast gently, so if we can just start with our gentle introductory question, so if you can just tell listeners a little bit about you and your career to this point, please. So I started teaching back in 2007, uh, and I started working in in, in a city comp uh, in Manchester, um, which was a challenging environment, but I absolutely loved it. Um, And started out as an English teacher and worked my my way up to becoming head of English while I was there. And then 2014, I moved down to a a school uh, in Devon. Um, that was teaching boys and girls, and that was a, a, a 11 to 18 comp as well. Um, and whilst I was there, I, I became assistant principal with responsibility for teaching and learning and CPD, and also took on uh, the role that I'd been craving for ages, which was research lead. Um, and then back in December um, 2020, I made the move over to Northern Ireland, um, and I've, I've started working at a fantastic school called Carrick Fergus Grammar School, uh, and I'm now, as well as English teaching, I'm also the first research, director of research um, in the country, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, and as well as the teaching, um, I've, I've written four books. So back in April 2019, Boys Don't Try, co-written with Matt Pinkett, came out. Um, I've written a couple of English revision guides called You Can't Revise for GCSE English and You Can't Revise for A-Level English Literature. And then The Boy Question, uh, which is my my follow-up to Boys Don't Try, came out last week. So I I, I combined the teaching with writing uh, and absolutely love doing that, but absolutely love the fact that I still spend a decent chunk of my time in the classroom teaching English because that's what really keeps me going. 
Absolutely. And uh, for listeners, I've mentioned it in the kind of introduction to the show. So we did feature heavily uh, with Boys Don't Try and, and Matt did the interview for us there as well. So if the listeners are interested in going back and looking at that, I'm sure that most people will have read that by now. But if you are, you can go back and, and check that one out on our kind of back catalogue. OK, then, Mark. So let's get into the uh, the first question. So um, the book is, as we said, is the boy question. And the first kind of thing we're going to look at is how can the listener go about motivating boys to succeed in their classroom? I think this is an absolute central theme to the book, and it's a, a something I've been working um, on pretty much my entire career of, of, of teaching boys. And I think let's start with some of the things that we shouldn't do. Let's have a look at the things that that, that we've tried um, and I've tried myself to, to use to motivate boys to succeed in the classroom, and they've not really worked. And in fact, actually, lots of these well-intentioned strategies um, around boys' engagement have actually been really counterproductive and, and quite disastrous, I would argue. So we need to avoid relying on things like competition, um, using kind of boy-friendly curricula, uh, so trying to make the subject of our lessons relevant to boys' lives by using stereotypical ideas such as sport and gaming and cars and whatever it may be. Uh, and we also absolutely must get away from this idea um, of trying to keep boys active and getting them moving around and using the old kind of kinesthetic learning or anything like that. Um, and hopefully listeners of this podcast will be really well versed in in the kind of issues that can go wrong with, with those kind of approaches. But I still see that they're really prevalent um, around the schools that I, I go and visit and uh, people that I talk to. They're still the last vestiges of those kind of ideas uh, clinging on. So those are some of the things that I think we really must move away from. Instead, what can we do? Well, I think that the, the absolutely central thing to begin with is that to really motivate boys to succeed in your classroom, you need to really focus on subject-specific success. Mm-hmm. So you really need to be thinking about making them taste a real flavour of what it is like to be successful uh, in an English lesson, as a mathematician, as a geography, uh, in, in primary, the diff- different elements that you're working on, the different subjects that you move between. Um, a student can feel very different about themselves. They can have very different confidence levels moving from one classroom to another or from one subject to another. So I think it's absolutely essential that we work on that and that we we focus on, instead of trying to engage them through through kind of fun gimmicky kind of activities instead we say right they will feel better about themselves and they will want to learn more once they get a bit of a flavor of what it's like to to taste success uh, in that subject and that will motivate them so that that's absolutely um essential uh, i think as a, as a starting point and i think that the other thing that i talk about a lot in the book is the the research shows us that boys tend to be more likely to be extrinsically motivated. So they're kind of motivated more by the idea of the end result of seeing learning as a means to an end. So they'll be thinking very much about things like uh, getting a, a higher score or a higher grade uh, than their peers um, and things like that and, and seeing um, learning as competitive in that way which is why you shouldn't pander to it by bringing more competition into your, your lessons. Um, but also they'll be thinking about things like, um, you know, passing grades and reaching certain targets and getting certain jobs and earning certain amounts of money and things like that. And a lot of the research around academic motivation shows that it's not a particularly healthy way um, to move forward in your academic career. And it has a an issue around uh, academic attainment, but also I've been reading recently as well that it has a real issue around long-term happiness. If you're constantly striving for these particular external goals rather than doing things for the the joy of it, it leads you down this path where you're never going to be satisfied and you're always going to set yourself these targets that you can achieve rather than struggling to to try to aspire to to, to kind of master something. So I think those are the, the main ideas that we need to get our heads around. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, in terms of the book, so obviously, as you would expect, because you're very much still in the classroom, and you said you're obviously your first director of research schools in Northern Ireland, you can see that it comes through both of those experiences, both the lived experience of the classroom teacher, coupled with the academic research. And if I just may read some of your work back to you, Mark, if that's okay, yeah, one bit that really yeah. stuck with me is, 
you talked about, you know, that idea of boys trying to outdo, outdo each other in tests. So you're putting shifting boys' attitudes away from self-destructive performance goals and towards healthy and purposeful mastery goals. We can foster a classroom culture where all students are keen to do their best and can recognise and celebrate the best in others. I just think that's really, really powerful. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's really important. And, and that's one of the reasons why I think people listen when, when I give talks and pay attention to the books. And, and I think that beyond the research it is that I, I'm trying these kind of things out myself. You know, sometimes they don't work and I have to sit down and reevaluate and think, what is it that's making these particular students tick? But I think it's really important that we're very reflective about students' motivation and how we can work on a lot of the psychology of it, really. Absolutely. Right now, a bit of a theme that we've had for the last few episodes has been around behaviour. So I've got, you know, a borderline obsession uh, with behaviour because it's the day job <laughs> and that's what I'm kind of involved in all the time. Yeah. But you talk about that as well. And you talk about it in terms of how um, the, the, the listener and the teacher should react to boys' misbehaviour. So just tell us a little bit about that, Mark. I think it's really important that we acknowledge that the anger is something that as humans we all feel it's something that's unavoidable and no matter how much you've, you've kind of got like a laid-back persona and everything like this at times we all feel angry and teachers are very prone to anger given the nature of the job it's a stressful complex job um, and, and there's demands on our patience constantly uh, and, and I know that one of the studies that I cite said that in one particular um, piece of research teachers felt angry about 44% of their lessons. So if you think about that, in every other lesson, there's going to be a period where, when you're going to feel um, really irked by something. And it's probably going to get to the stage when, you know, it could possibly go beyond everyday annoyance to something where you could potentially lose it a little bit. Um, and I think that one of the things about this is that often when we're talking about students' behaviour and when we're talking about boys' behaviour, it's this real sense of, well, I, I shouldn't have to deal with this. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not kind of a social worker. This, these things should be just dealt with and I should just be able to teach the subject knowledge. And I've got a lot of sympathy with that approach because I know how draining dealing with behaviour can be. But I think that we have to ac acknowledge that there's things that we can do in response to this behaviour, which, yeah, is frustrating the way that we respond can totally change the nature of this um, issue, this incident, whatever it is. And I think that the anger is really corrosive to teacher-student relationships uh, and it, it spreads around the classroom and people pick up on it uh, in a way that we can really lead to a negative um, environment within the classroom for, for quite some time and the research seems to show that, that teachers are more likely to get angry with boys than girls for, for a variety of reasons so how are we going to deal with it how are we going to deal with these periods when we, we feel this sense of deep deep frustration well I think the research that I've read around kind of communication and teachers and the way that they respond to these kind of provocations shall we say is that there's only one really way that's effective, and that is calm, honest, and open, but really assertive and firm as well. So you'll say things like, um, I'm not particularly happy with what's just happened. I personally feel that that's something that, that is unacceptable in my classroom. Uh, I'm not going to stand for it, uh, but we're going to move on. And if it happens again, we're going to have a big problem. Just, just things like that where you're making it very clear in a calm, polite way that you're not going to stand for it, um, but at the same time, you, there's no kind of passive aggression. There's no attempt to get back. There's no kind of um, getting in students' faces or raising your voice or things like that. And that's something that I think is, is really powerful. And the reason, more than anything, why we should do that, as well as kind of keeping our blood pressure down, is that students respond to that. And that's not just my experience. It it's, it's, comes through the research, is that when you adopt any other kind of um, approaches, you know, sarcasm or, or things like that, um, the research shows that they blame you for it. Even if they know deep down what they've done was out of order, the way that you respond to it can dictate whether they think, all right, fair enough, I, I, I shouldn't have done that, or whether they think, oh, you know, I don't like him or I don't like her or why they're always having a go at me. So it's not just uh, in our interest. I think it's also in the interest of the, the relationship and 
ultimately changing their behavior so i think that that that's absolutely massive that we we think about that and that we we're aware that anger is an essential part of being human but it's something that we can deal with in a really effective way Yep, couldn't agree more. And again, further to the theme that we talked about in the first chapter about your lived experience, I loved the case of the flying biro. (laughs) And I mean, I I just think I can see myself saying that line and I I don't want anybody to to send in some horror story where this has actually happened. But Mm. we we all find ourselves saying that, don't we? You know, you could have had someone's eye out with that. And, you know, they said, just if you don't mind, Mark, just share with that a little bit about that as a case study about how teacher A and teacher B kind of react to that. So you, you you know the situation where you you kind of circulate in the classroom and you you kind of bending over to help one student who's stuck with their work, uh, and something goes flying across the classroom, a pen or something, and you don't see it, but you, it kind of just goes past your ear, and um, you're obviously your first instinct, and teacher A is the one who goes berserk and says that could have could have had my eye out that one, or you know, and just goes absolutely crazy, get out of my room and, and understandably we, we can't accept that kind of behaviour in our classroom. We don't we're not going to tolerate it. But teacher A goes berserk. Teacher B, the, the the students are all looking, there's an audience, so they're all waiting to see are they going to go crazy. And teacher B just makes it very clear that I want something done about this. I am going to deal with this. Um, I want the person who threw that because it was a very dangerous and reckless act that I won't stand in my classroom. I want them to come to speak to me at the end of the classroom, at, at the end of the lesson, and, and stay behind in the classroom. Or they, they can, you know, um, have a, come and have a word with me in a moment, and we'll deal with it, and we'll deal with it appropriately. Um, but that's what I expect to happen. Uh, yeah. And that kind of thing, I think, really, I talk about kind of turning down the heat resetting the temperature and just cooling things down when everyone is looking for some kind of escalation and some kind of explosion. Nailers, natter, just talking to teachers. Definitely. And you give some behaviour tips at the end and one that kind of resonated with me, as I mentioned weekly, and people would get annoyed with me saying that I do some teaching. I do like one class, Mark, you know, but at least I do something. <laughs> you know, I used to do some teaching. But um, one bit you put at the end, I put subject knowledge is your suit of armour. Now, again, listeners aren't interested particularly in my anecdotes, but having had a year 11 top set this year and the best lessons. And I've just thought, and you've put it there, really knowing my stuff makes me feel invincible. And I was doing a particular lesson on, I think it was Punnett squares I was doing about inherited diseases in biology. And they were just sitting there going, oh, he actually is a science teacher. Oh, he actually, you know, but that, that's another story. They find it fascinating that, you know, you, deputy head and a teacher. They think, well, <laughs> yeah. yes, that's a, Anyway, that's a side story. But just tell us a little bit about that as a behaviour tip and maybe how that could be slightly different for maybe new entrants to the profession, NQTs, etc. Yeah, I'd always found that as a, an NQT that the times that I was losing it a little bit and, and getting really stressed and feeling as if I didn't have control of a classroom was often the bits where I was really blagging it and, and I didn't quite know my stuff. And, and sometimes it would take a little thing like... Um, I'd say something wrong or I'd, I'd get muddled up about characters' names or something like this and, and a kid would laugh uh, and I'd rise to it and I'd say something. And, and on reflection, I was kind of like, that came from my insecurity and it came from me knowing that I needed to put more work into my subject knowledge. And these days I can kind of laugh those stuff off when I'm in the situation where I really know my stuff. And actually I find that probably... The equivalent these days, if, if I go to a cover lesson and I'm covering some lesson where I'm completely out of my depth, I'm more likely to find myself getting a little bit more angsty and I have to remind myself that that's probably one of the reasons why I'm, I'm getting a little bit tetchy is because I really don't know what I'm doing. Uh, and I think it's very important that we think about subject knowledge is this kind of protective shield that means that if we're doing some live modeling on the board and um, I don't know, one of the, one of the kids laughs, we can laugh along. We can use self-deprecation because we, we know deep down that we really know our stuff. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So the next chapter, so we're into chapter three now and chapter three and, and helpfully Mark, you've given questions as the title. So it makes it easy for the interviewer, <laughs> doesn't it? You know, so yeah. I'm just going to put that straight to you as the chapter title yeah. question. So do boys need, male role models uh sorry i've said it wrong i do boys need male teachers as role models yeah a lot of people think that they do and and you we often hear um politicians and uh community leaders and people saying you know that this is what's wrong with our society that um 
boys have not really got these kind of male figures and that teachers need to be the role models. And again, it's one of these kind of common sense things where it seems to just be a no-brainer. Um, and let me start with the, the kind of positive reasons for having male teachers and trying to use them as role models in this way. I think that any kind of move towards an equal gender balance within professions within society, I think is a really positive thing, particularly when you're looking at kind of early years teaching primary. Having more males in those kind of nurturing roles, I think is a really positive step, and that would be great. Uh, And I think that it starts to challenge these kind of negative stereotypes about why men want to work with young children. If there's lots of men doing it, it's going to be less these kind of terrible, terrible uh, assertions that often get passed around about, you know, there must be something suspect about men if they're wanting to work with young children and all those kind of awful things that often primary school teachers may face. I think also there's real pastoral advantages and a few studies um, make it really clear that particularly when boys start to, to get close to puberty, having a male teacher that they can discuss particular concerns with is, is really comforting for them. Um, and I think that the idea of having men there, if you see them, you can be them kind of thing, male primary school teachers in particular, is a real positive. So so those are the things that, that I'm not saying, no, I don't want more men in these professions. I think there's a lot to be said for it. But, and it's a massive but, the problem is, is that when you've got kind of politicians and often head teachers as well and chairs of governors and so on saying we need more male role models, there's a big assumption. Uh, and what are they actually asking? What are they wanting? What are they looking for in these men? And often what they're looking for in these men are these stereotypical ideas. And again, this is backed up by lots of research um, around what they want. And often when they say they want men as role models, they want men as disciplinarians. They want big rugby playing blokes who can be seen as very sporty, uh, can kind of lead on behaviour in primary schools in particular, uh, can be the ones who who kind of go off and do the after-school clubs and lead on the kind of active forest school things and all this kind of stuff. So they're looking for this kind of stereotype. And they believe that by by doing this, it's going to impact on boys' literacy skills and, and everything. It's just going to make them more happy and more uh, successful academically. And there's no evidence to show that this actually works. Uh, in fact, when you look at the evidence, it suggests that, that if anything, um, boys at primary school are doing better with female teachers. And again, that's no kind of slight on male teachers at all. Um, but we just need to be really careful that when we think about this, there's a solid evidence base behind it rather than just pandering to some kind of outdated notions about um, female teachers are too feminine or uh, you know, the lads are growing up too soft or there's any kind of idea that there's some kind of deficit for single mothers. It's really insulting to single mums to say that they, they can't bring up boys successfully without having these kind of father figures in the classroom. So we end up reinforcing these stereotypes about masculinity that I think get us where we are with boys in the first place. So it's really problematic. And then the other thing is that trying to be this role model as a, as a young male teacher is virtually impossible because everybody wants different things from you. you know. And I, I do this kind of spoof job advert in the book where it's like, uh, you know, you, you've got to be strong, sporty, caring, uh, good at this, good at that, academically successful. And it's just impossible. And, and one of the studies, I think it, it's, it lists about 67 different qualities that they're looking for in a, a male teacher role model. Nobody can do that. So, it, yeah, it's a deeply problematic kind of well-intentioned, but also at times outdated approach, I think. Definitely, definitely. That's a particularly interesting chapter. So that's, uh, yeah, do boys need male teachers as role models? Okay, Mark, now what I did is, and I don't often do this, but because there's such interest in the book, uh, I put a tweet out. Now, we're lucky to be supported by a lot of regular listeners, both on the podcast and when it goes out uh, on Teacher Hug Radio. And uh, Fabian has, has asked a couple of questions via the tweets. Now, I don't know if you've seen these, so I'm taking these directly from the tweets, but I know he's a regular listener, particularly to the Teacher Hug version of the show. So he asked the question what does mark see as possible solutions to boys not having a clear vision on where do you see yourself in five years and how can we help boys to have a clearer sense of direction 
Mm. It's a good question. Um, I, I am going to kind of tackle the ideas behind it, but I can see why we would want boys to have this direction. And direction is a good thing. I'm not so sure about the where do you see yourselves in five years is such a good thing now. And I'm going to explain why. If we think back to this idea of motivation and extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation, this idea of seeing yourself in five years' time, it usually gives some sense of kind of personal goal, personal ambition. You know, if, if someone asked me this question in an interview, I meant to say, uh, you know, I want to be a head teacher because I believe that by then I'll be able to do this, this and this and that kind of stuff. If you ask it of a student, you probably expect them to say something like, well, I, I need to get a, an A, B, B, and then I'll be able to go and do zoology at um, Cardiff University, that, that kind of thing. And in one sense, it makes sense to us to think that this is a really ambitious uh, aspirational boy and that's what we want. And we definitely do want them to have aspirations. But I think that a far more healthier form of, of, of um, direction for boys is to think about them having this or us encouraging this joy of learning and this real joy of the subject. And if they focus on this love of learning, everything else will then take care of itself. Um, ben Newmark has, has this brilliant line that he talks about where he says that Students want to be successful students. They want to be successful children in the here and now. That They don't want to be successful adults. And often as teachers, we focus too far down the line instead of just focusing on what can we do to make you motivated and have this sense of direction now and the future will take care of itself. So I, I think that, that that would my be my answer to that, that. We want them to have aspirations. Um, and some do, but most of them don't. And I think that's fine as long as we're really getting them to think about the joy of knowing more and the joy of getting better at stuff and focusing instead on this continual, gradual improvement through their studies. I think that's healthier. Yeah, great, great. So we're going to come back to another question from, from Fabian later on. Right, now the next question is kind of a selfish question in a couple of senses because I'm coming at this from, you know, the teaching point of view. And uh, next year, the one class that I do have is a year seven class. And I'm also the parent of um, a year seven boy. So um, you know which chapter I'm going to talk about now. And especially, <laughs> yeah. you know, we've had obviously months of lockdown and home study, etc. So uh, the broad question, which I may follow up on, is how can I improve the study skills of the boys I teach? And maybe of the uh, the boy at home as well would be quite useful. Yeah, I, I think that this is one of the areas that we can make the biggest impact. Um, I'm increasingly of the mind that, that this is something um, with boys and, and gender attainment gaps that we can really work on. And I think what we tend to do at the moment is schools that are, are really um, thinking about evidence and thinking about the, the ways that the kind of best bets for, for students learning most effectively, they usually talking to them about retrieval practice and space practice and maybe dual coding and things like this. And, and that's great. Not all schools, but, but I think increasingly a lot of schools are doing that. But I think the problem is that we often do these kind of study skills sessions. We'll do them in assemblies or we maybe do a one-off, um, you know, key stage four success evening or something like that, where we show them these study sessions. We'll, we'll maybe share them with parents or something like that. And then often that's it. Um, what we tend not to do is we tend not to go back and check and see what's going on. And what a lot of the research shows is that for boys and girls, but for boys in particular, even when they're aware of these more effective forms of um, studying, retrieval practice, space practice, and so on, what tends to happen is they tend to start out with these good intentions over the course of, the, say, the GCSEs or the A-levels or whatever, they start to fall into bad habits, leave it a little bit late because retrieval and space practice tend to rely on a little and often approach. And then as they get closer to the assessments, they start to fall back into those old ineffective strategies like rereading, highlighting, cramming, all those kind of things. Um, so we need to guard against that by making sure that we're constantly putting study skills at the heart of the curriculum. So in lessons, in each separate subject, rather than just kind of like a generic, this is what it looks like. I think it's really important that teachers are constantly saying, okay, so if I was going to create a flashcard for this, this is what it would look like, or here's 
have a look at my um, under the visualizer. Here's my annotations for this. Now, if I was going home, this is what I'd do next to make sure I've got effective notes for these and, and, and so on and so on. And I think those are really, really important things to do. One of the scariest things I read um, is this idea that about 44% of students fall back into these kind of bad habits once they've known uh, about the good strategies. But even worse than that, the average amount of time in this one piece of research that students study for in total for one assessment, one exam was four hours in total. Now, that's frightening. If you think about your, your GCSE that you've been doing with them for two years, or if you think about you know working towards your, your Key Stage 2 SATs, uh, and then they just do four hours the night before, that's terrifying, isn't it? So I think we've got to be thinking about this process of ongoing, um, not just checking on them, but checking in on them and making sure that they know what they're doing. You know, there's an example the other day where a lad that I teach he said to me, I'm using flashcards. It's just not going in. So it's okay. Show me how you use flashcards. And what he was doing, he was, he was flipping it over uh, before he said the answer. So he was kind of reading the answer before he'd said it aloud. So he was kind of cheating himself. And he thought that he was getting the answers right, but he wasn't because he was kind of jumping ahead. So just tiny little things like that can make a massive difference uh, to the way that they are able to, to retain information in the long run. So that's one massive thing that we've got to, as teachers, constantly keep on going back to it. And as schools, we've got to constantly keep on going back to it. But like that boy, I was so pleased that he came and asked me for help because not many do. And what we've got to teach boys to do, and this is particularly when you talk about uh, remote learning, Phil, is that often the reason why boys don't complete work is that they are strugglers incapable of, of asking for help for, for a variety of reasons and the main reason is that they are worried they're going to look stupid so I think something else that we can model in class is if I got stuck this is what I would do or um, going around to particular boys who you might anticipate might struggle to complete work and, and say things like um, Nailers, natter, just talking to teachers. If you think you're going to get stuck, I want you to first of all do these three, three things before you come and speak to me on things like that. So just those kind of things, are, I think, are, are really important. Definitely. I mean, what I like about the chapter is that, and, and when I worked at uh, the research school in Blackpool, we did some kind of similar sessions around what well, you've done at the beginning about what is the issue? What do we mean by study skills? And then actually break those down and say what, you know, what the evidence kind of supports. And uh, we did a particular article from uh, sponsored by WH Smith's, um, you know, other retailers are available, um, <laughs> which talked about the benefits of highlighting. Um, and we got, you know, we got delegates on our course to talk about, well, I wonder why they've kind of, um, been on about the the <laughs> the benefits of this. They even said things about you know use color theory in your work. Red will make you think of uh, strawberries, uh, which make you think of Haribo straws, which are available in aisle four of W. H. Smith's. You know, so there was a lot of things. But I think what you've done there is really useful. You've gone through all those different things and what's effective and what the evidence supports, but also the bits that I highlighted in terms of the parent side of things is, and you talked about today with the flashcards, modeling every aspect of that study process and talking mm -hmm. rather than just saying, right, you know, you're going to revise for an hour in you go in your bedroom. Here's some, like I said, new highlighters, some post-it notes, um, you know, and, and stick that classical music on in the background. Cause we know that works yeah. as well. He says <laughs> jokingly, um, you know, so I thought that was really, really beneficial about how to break that down and really concrete examples for teachers to do that as well. Yeah, I think I think that also the the psychology of it is really important. We talked earlier about the kind of psychology of behaviour and the psychology of motivation. I think the the psychology of of studying, or rather not studying, when you know that you should be studying, is really something that we can tap into as well. So um, I've been reading quite a bit about procrastination, and and boys tend to be more likely to procrastinate than girls when it comes to study sessions. Now, traditionally, as teachers, a boy turns up, you know, he's not done his homework or he's not done the revision. Our response is to tell them off, and understandably so. It's, it's frustrating. It's annoying. But I think one way that we can really get into their minds before we get to that stage is to talk to them about the impact of procrastination. Uh, and a lot of the research shows that when you procrastinate, you know, say you go down the park rather than sitting in and doing your biology homework, 
when you're at the park with your mates, you're not actually having a good time. And the reason you're not having a good time is you feel guilty, you feel anxious, what's going to happen next day when I'm meant to hand my homework in, I'm going to get into trouble, my parents are going to find out, all these kind of things. And actually, if we can say to, to boys in particular, listen, I know that this is going to be an hour. I know you're probably not going to feel like doing this over the weekend, but trust me, do it first thing Saturday morning. You can have the rest of the weekend guilt-free and you can go down the park and you can enjoy yourself. We know this as adults, don't we? But I think sometimes we we forget that this is what it's like to be a teenager or to be a child and that we need someone to, to help us see the benefits of doing stuff. Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, even even at my advancing years, and it's a long time since I was a teenager, but, you know, I, I sit there on a Sunday night and plan out the week. And then, you know, you'd feel guilty if you don't do the things that are on the plan in the evening. Mm-hmm. You know, in my particular yeah. case at the moment, a lot of it revolves around trying to do some more exercise or things like that. But even even things like, you know, particular bits of reading, because um, I'd obviously do a lot of reading, writing yeah. those down. And then, like you said, you can enjoy the enjoyment because... You're not feeling as if you should be doing something else, but I love the way you've broken that down. I think it's really, really useful. Thank you. Right now, uh, into feedback. Now, I mean, a lot of this that you've talked about here, and I've seen some some parallels with some of the EEF's recent work, and they've put on mm. the, the, their uh, recent guide on on feedback as well. So, um, if you just tell us a little bit more, Mark, about how we can give boys effective feedback. Okay, so I think that where where does gender come into this? Well, I think one of one of the key things is that. Boys and girls, according to the the studies, seem to get different types of feedback. Uh, And and one of the things is that when we're going back to those kind of boys' engagement strategies, often we were told as trainee teachers or as slightly more experienced teachers that, that one way to make sure that boys would be motivated and engaged is if we make sure that we give them lots of praise. Um, And effective feedback is not feedback that, that comes with, with kind of empty praise and is just showered with praise. Because what tends to happen is that when you say to a boy, oh, that was brilliant, well done for uh, you know writing the, the, the date down, and I'm, I'm really impressed that you managed to answer question one, which was effectively the one that you did together on the board and things like this, they pick up on the fact that you're giving them praise for completing something really easy. And instead of them thinking, oh, that means that, that Miss really believes in me or Sir's really impressed with me, they actually think, mm, he's giving me praise or she's giving me praise for something that was dead easy. That means actually they don't really expect that much of me. So that kind of empty praise has, a, has a, the opposite impact than you would think. And also that kind of vague praise that I'll often see where a boy sticks his hand up, answers a question, it's not really right. And the teacher's like, yeah, well done, well done, great, great, great. And there's no kind of explanation of, of why it's wrong or if it is right, why it's right. And and this just kind of like shutting it down by just saying, good, 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 good. It leaves them feeling confused and, and unclear about where to go forward. So those are some of the kind of basic things with this. But I think the other big difference is that boys tend to get feedback that that can be described as managerial Um, so managerial feedback is this kind of feedback that's based around things like um, it's too scruffy or you've not filled all the boxes in or you should have done what I asked you to do with this or you know you've not quite got up to section c when 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 I expected that and that tends to be feedback that's written on on the books and it's not useful in helping them improve as learners whereas there's a girl who gets feedback uh, you know this this is great but it'd be much more effective if you could manage to include evidence to support this and that kind of thing so that's one of the the things that our frustration around boys behavior i think comes out on the page when we're marking their work as well so you'll see feedback that says things like this is not good enough do it again well, okay, what's what's not good enough about it? Give you know, give them some prompts, give them some kind of things. If you want to give them a telling off, do it verbally. Don't waste time writing it down and don't expect them to kind of be able to act upon it. The other thing that I think with boys is is the thing that I touched on there about this obsession with task completion. Um, what is the main learning game? What is the success criteria? What do they need to do to get there? Rather than just focusing on this idea of uh, constant productivity productivity is really important but not at the extent expense of everything else 
And then finally, this high expectation that feedback will be acted upon, I think is really important for boys. We often see where feedback will, will give them this precise things to work on and then they don't do it and nothing happens as a result of it. So I think that there's, there's various angles that you can come at. Don't give them the meaningless praise. Think about are you giving them the same kind of praise that you're giving girls and what kind of impact is that having and what kind of expectations do you have out of it? And then also this, this sense that you're going to give them feedback that's going to be very useful and they're going to act upon it in future tasks or at that time, however you're giving it. So I think those are some of the key fundamentals of, of good feedback for boys. And again, in this chapter, you just find yourself nodding along and thinking that's exactly the kind of thing that, that I've done as a teacher. You know, look to that way. You know, why have you not completed this? Why is this not done? You know, mm-hmm. it's why is that not underlined? And then perhaps, you know, and yeah, you're right. Perhaps with other students, you then end up writing much more specific, you know, task oriented kind of feedback that you do there rather than just I'm annoyed at you because I know you can do better. <laughs> so this is what yeah. I'm going to write. Yeah. All right, so now speaking of feedback, Mark, I'm going to give just a cut-off mid-show here for some feedback. So I don't know if listeners are aware, I've mentioned it briefly at the beginning, that obviously you've uh, had a foray into the world of podcasting as well, didn't you? Um, you know, which was very, very successful last year. So, I mean, if I could signpost yes. um, listeners to that, I know that obviously lots of people will have seen that as well, but one of my particular favourites was around expectations that you did. I think that was probably about this time last year, was it? Something like that. Yeah, it would have been during lockdown. I think I think the, the expectations one, um, it's chapter five, so it probably is episode five of the Boys Don't Try podcast. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, and as well as that, if there are any English teachers that are listening, um, I also have, have started doing a podcast for my You Can't Revise English mm. um, podcast where I've had some various GCSE English expert teachers uh, come on as a guest and discuss certain texts. So there's there's that going as well. Yep, and what we'll do is we'll put links to all of that on on the show notes as well. Right, last couple of questions, Mark, before, and I'm hoping that you're going to play along and step into the vinyl suite later on. Um, So I'll just give you a a quick reminder on that one. So before we get there, and this is a really, again, I feel like I'm asking lots of selfish questions, but this is the reason I bought the book in the first place. It was as much (laughs) from a parenting point of view as it was from a teaching point of view. But, you know, know, if you can't indulge yourself on your own podcast, when where can you? That's what it's worth for. Yeah, exactly. So how can we, and I will say how can listener, uh, the listener, encourage boys to have or maintain an interest in reading particularly through those teenage years yeah this is a really tough tough question uh and the the reason why it's so difficult i think goes back to some of the kind of stereotypes that are very much at large in in society where reading is largely seen as a feminine activity um and and this goes right back to an early age where if you look at the kind of birthday presents that, that young children tend to get, girls often get bought books. Boys will get games, toys, uh, sports equipment, latest football kits, things like that. Again, I'm talking, I'm generalising, but but it's very clear that the, the studies tend to back that up. And if you have a look at the, the number of books that boys tend to have in, in, within their rooms, within their households, it's a lot lower usually than girls. So I think it goes back to a very early age, uh, and people have put forward all kinds of biological differences and things. And when I look at those, they don't really hold up. I think that the, the kind of sociological explanations uh, are much stronger. So we've got a situation where, where boys often perceive reading as something that's uncool to do. Uh, and, you know, I've got a, a 10 and an 8-year-old boy, a 4-year-old boy. They all absolutely love reading. Um, but I know that... When they're in groups with their friends, do they talk about their love of reading as much as they talk about their love of football and sport? No, they don't. It's something that's kind of a bit of a private activity. And I, I suspect that as we get to secondary school and beyond, that might be even more so. So there's something about reading that is considered t- deeply uncool. And I know that from my own experience at secondary school, I was absolutely a hidden secret solitary reader absolutely because it would have invited scorn and some at my uh, pretty rough uh, secondary school so there's all those kind of things around peer pressure uh, are there in the background so what we're going to do to overcome this we've got to make reading such an attractive activity that it hooks them in that they can't help themselves and we need to do this from an early age as possible um, but it's not too late, I don't think. I don't think it's too late, even as a, a secondary school teacher, 
even later on, you know, you teach in a GCSE class. I've seen boys who found the book and it's managed to get them going. So let's think about certain, again, key principles here. First of all, we should never, as teachers, use the idea of reading as some form of punishment or some kind of unfavorable activity. You talk about things that we've all done as a teacher. I, I know I've done this myself. I was going to put a film on for you to watch as soon as it's the last uh, last lesson of, of term. You carry on like this, though, and we're going to we're going to do some reading instead. Just little things like this, um, and and I think it's really important that we're very careful to see reading as something that is exciting and enjoyable, not something that's kind of like this. This oh, we only do it because we have to do kind of thing. So I think that we need to be very careful as teachers and as parents to really challenge any kind of stereotypes about boys' reading habits. So these kind of myths that boys only like nonfiction and things like this, which again is just not held up uh, in the evidence as well. I think schools that have got librarians and, and they've got the right kind of resources are in a really strong position to do stuff, but we know that that's becoming increasingly rare and as, as cuts start to bite, lots of schools have had to get rid of, of librarians and even get rid of libraries. So the onus starts to become more and more on the teacher. And, and the case studies that I use in, in the book uh, are absolutely brilliant case studies uh, and tends to focus around this real ethos of making sure that your school does everything to create this real culture of reading. And people often try this for a few months and it doesn't really make any difference and it quietly goes away. But it's clear from these case studies that it can take years really to, to really bring about this massive shift in the emphasis on reading in your school. Uh, but one of the case studies um, looks at the idea of the classroom library uh, and Freya um, Odell, who wrote the, the case study, talks about the fact that just having a little um, bookshelf in your classroom that, that, that boys can have access to, they don't have to go through the kind of rigmarole of going into the library and booking it out and things, and that you know they just take it. And just having easy access to books at home is massive. That hopefully they'll see their dad's reading, and that will be something that will be positive as well. But one thing that was really interesting was this this um, advice to make sure you've tried to have multiple copies of the same book. So if you're going to have one of these little classroom libraries, or you know, even if you're a, uh, not an English teacher and you want to get them reading, say, some popular science or some books about maths or whatever it may be, try to have, say, three or four of the same book so that you can lend them out. And then once boys get talking about them and sharing ideas around it, this creates a bit of a buzz and they're more likely to go on to be readers if they see that it's something that their peers are doing as well. Now, one other thing that recent research from um, the National Literacy Survey seems to suggest that boys are increasingly listening to audiobooks more during lockdown. That was something that kicked in. So while they're reading less, that might potentially be something that can act as a bit of a, a gateway drug. So if parents are coming to you and saying, can you give me any kind of recommendations? My son used to love reading. Um, at primary school, he read all the time. And now that he's in year eight, he just doesn't read. He's not interested. Maybe you know, if he's got a bus journey or something like that, you get him a, a, an audible book. That might be a way in. That might be something worth trying. Yeah, that's such a good idea, Mark. It really is a good idea. And, um, you know, something in the in the list of a uh, number of bad parent things that I've done is uh, force my children to get off TikTok in the back of the car and uh, stick on it. As people will know, my uh, for, for better or worse, I've got some kind of George Orwell obsession. So we oh, had uh, we had Animal Farm on, and I'm thinking they're both staring out the window and being really annoyed and upset that we're being forced to do this. Hmm. And then when we, we finally got to the destination and, and so they said, hang on, hang on, hang on, I need to know what happens to Boxer. <laughs> I was like, yes. right, okay, good. We're getting to absolutely yeah. right. You know, I like I like the term gateway drug for that as well because I must admit I do uh, consume quite a lot of the reading that I do. Usually, um, you know, the novels that I'm reading, I used to do through Audible, through Audible and do that as kind of something when I'm either at the gym or driving to and yeah. from work and get through things yeah. pretty quickly. Of course, yeah, I read all great. of these kind of things, uh, all, all the proper books. I read those in print, of course. <laughs> of, of course, of course. Although, you know, I'm sure that Boy Question will be available on Audible shortly. Absolutely, exclusives there. <laughs> right, so last question before we go into the vinyl suite. So this is again from Fabian who sent this question in via Twitter. So uh, he wants to talk a little bit 
bit about toxic masculinity. I know that's something that you've talked about previously in the previous book and in mm. the podcasts. So why is kindness often perceived as weakness and why does this myth continue to be perpetuated? Again, it's, it's a brilliant but massive question. Um, I think when you look at the way that, that boys tend to interact with each other when they're in groups, it, it's very difficult to to be kind and caring and to talk about your emotions in an open way without inviting ridicule. Uh, and often the default method of, of this kind of masculinity is as a kind of banter and, you know, ba- there's a place for banter as long as it doesn't become nasty bullying and constantly uh, tearing each other apart. Uh, and I think that that tends to be the, the default method and it's very difficult um, for for boys to to break out of that without being ridiculed further and, and probably being quite ostracised. So so that's something that that is difficult. It tends to be this kind of sheep mentality where if you want to be popular, if you want to be part of that gang, part of that in crowd, uh, particularly when you, you look at certain schools where you, you've got groups of boys who seem to be the ones that everybody looks up to. It's it's very very difficult um, to break away from that, um, and I think that this this idea of individualism is something I'll, I'll often kind of you know give advice to my kids about. Uh, you just need to say no, and you kind of you know break away from them. But you, you think it's so easy to say that as a as a parent as an adult, it's very difficult to actually go in and be the one who's strong enough to step away and say, I, I don't think we should do that, or that wasn't a particularly nice thing that you've just said to her, or I don't want to share these kind of photos of girls or look at this porn or anything like that. Um, so I think it's very, very difficult, and, and it can only really be tackled um, by teachers, parents, and ultimately society together constantly working on these kind of things. And I think as a as a school teacher, the best you can do is to say, my classroom is a place where it's a haven for kindness and caring attitudes, and I will not tolerate at all any kind of diversion from that. And I'm going to be the kind of teacher that's going to tackle it in the corridors. I'm going to tackle it when I'm on duty. Um, I'm going to tackle colleagues and this is difficult i'm going to tackle my colleagues if i hear them saying things that are are dodgy or that are are kind of perpetuating this and ultimately it has to come from the top as well and i think that the the slt have got a massive role to play in this uh, and to make sure that we create environments where where boys can be kind and not be seen as being weak Um, and there's some brilliant role models out there i talked about how teachers aren't really seen that much by by students as role models, but there's plenty of role models out there who are. Uh, and you, you can talk about the kindness and the caring nature of, of some of the footballers who've been getting you know, terrible abuse this week and, and things like this. And, and it is out there in, in our society and they are kind and caring men. Um, but we need to just keep on chipping away until we, we get it to, to become a stage where it becomes a cultural thing, where there's more of it in your school and in your classroom. Nailers, natter, just talking to teachers. Absolutely. Okay, so obviously we want to leave listeners wanting more. So just a reminder that obviously we're talking about the book, which is The Boy Question, How to Teach Boys to Succeed in School. And there's a couple more chapters that we haven't talked about because, again, we want people to go out and buy it immediately. So uh, Mark talks about how to improve boys' academic writing and how to make sure that boys do well in creative writing, amongst other things as well. So the most exciting bit and the bit you've all been waiting for, and this is the bit where I get to use the music license that I invested heavily in to play a 30-second snippet of whatever track it is that that Mark chooses. Now, again, for new listeners, I explain it every time. Um, when I first started the podcast, we didn't necessarily have a vinyl suite, but we now we've we've moved through three offices. Mark now myself and uh, High Noon, who's uh, my colleague uh, at school and and the kind of stalks me on Twitter. Um, we've moved from a very small cupboard into a cupboard under the uh, toilet system, which was particularly entertaining. Uh, and we bought ourselves a record player, and then people start donating vinyl to us, so we can play that. We, as I say every week, we do actually do some work in this vinyl suite. But now we've moved Brilliant. to a palatial, luxurious uh, office with a window. I mean, it's fantastic, oh, and you know, full surround sound speakers. So yeah. that's where the, the vinyl suite came from. But I think this section gives us a bit of a chance to kind of find out a bit more about you um, in terms of your music choice. So, would you be able to share a story related to a particular piece of music and tell listeners why it's influenced you and your career? 
I found this really difficult. I'm a massive music fan. I always listen to the Desert Island Discs and things like this. So I found it tricky to, to kind of narrow it down. And what I tried to think of was a song that was really there at the start of my career and that I still use now as kind of motivation and inspiration uh, myself. And the song I've gone for is a Bob Dylan track called Tangled Up in Blue. And it's a wonderful, epic um, song. And I remember once, the reason why it, it stuck out for me, it's an NQT. I don't know if you have those days at, at the schools that you've worked in, Phil, where um, towards the end of the summer term, there's usually a few days where normal lessons kind of get pushed to one side and you have some kind of um, fun day where it's kind of teachers uh, leading on particular subjects that they're fascinated with and kids kind of vote with their feet and go to these different groups and things like this. Well, I, I think because I was an NQT, I, I got dumped with a, a creative writing group uh, with about six particularly grumpy boys who not signed up for anything and got dumped in with me. Well, everybody else was playing rounders and football and watching exciting movies and going off on forest adventures and things like this. I was trying to get them to write uh, epic stories and things. And I remember, oh God, cringing just thinking about it, but I remember tr- trying to get them hooked into creative writing by listening to some Bob Dylan uh, lyrics. And these were these were kids who were just, they were only really interested in grime and drum and bass. And I remember when when uh, I played them the song and then we looked at the lyrics and, so what do you think to this song now? And I remember one of them says, he sounds like one of these guys that you'd see out, outside the co-op drinking cans <laughs> of special brew. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's actually quite a good, yeah, uh, yeah. good summary of, uh, of Bob Dylan. But I think I think the reason why this this song's always struck with me is it's it's a story about someone who kind of comes from pretty humble uh, background, um, and there's a few of the lyrics that suggest that the the woman that he's in love with is kind of I don't know her parents are, are like looking down on his accent and social class, and I know that when I went to university that was something that I I felt quite acutely uh, and he's kind of gone through this this whole list of really rubbish jobs where he's kind of moving on from place to place and until I found teaching I was doing that myself um, all kinds of terrible jobs and you know worked in factories for four years and um, moved from, from into offices and you know working in like deeply unsatisfying jobs uh, but running through this is this real love of literature that he, he kind of the, the, the speaker comes across. He, he discovers this love of literature. And there's a few, uh, a few lines that if, if you'll indulge me, I'm just going to read out. And he says, she opened up a book of poems and handed it to me, written by an Italian poet from the 13th century. And every one of them words rang true and glowed like burning coal pouring off every page like it was written in my soul and I just thought oh yeah that that really speaks to me because I was always that kind of uh, secret reader someone who wanted to use big words someone who wanted to talk about poetry but couldn't and uh, had this kind of um, attitude and reputation to live up as like one of the lads so for me having the ability, even when they weren't particularly receptive to begin with, but having this opportunity to talk about these kind of things, it, it's what English teaching's all about, really. Um, and, and I suppose throughout my career, I've been a little bit like the, the narrator in this, uh, this song. I've moved from place to place. I've moved from job to job. Only three jobs, but it still feels nomadic given the kind of distances that I've moved. Uh, and then the final couple of lines, he says, the only thing I knew how to do was to keep on keeping on like a bird that flew. And I think teaching is very much keep on keeping on, isn't it? You know, just that sense of whatever happens, you turn up next day and you just keep on going. Uh, and, and that's for me, it's probably why I see it about a song about me, but I also see it a song about teaching as well. And let's hear it now. I thought you'd never say hello, she said, you look like a silent day. She opened up a book of poems and handed it to me Written by an Italian poet from the 13th century And every one of them words rang true and glowed like burning coal Pouring off of every page like it was written in my soul for me to use Tangled up in blue Okay, 
well this is why we love that section mark we absolutely love that section because that does that says a lot there's so many things there one we have definitely lived those weeks we used to call it wonderful week and it was anything but let me tell you uh, i can't get in trouble for that because i don't work there anymore so it's okay and i don't think they no. do it anymore anyway but yes it was exactly like that and the other thing i know this is a side issue but when you talk and obviously you talked in the in the previous book about this quite a lot and i spoke about this with matt about the idea of accent and social class which is something mm. that you know I feel particularly strongly about. I did a podcast with Ian Gilbert about the working class um, fairly recently, yeah. and, and just you know I refused. That's why I've done a podcast and not a video. Well, obviously because I've got a face for radio. That's the first thing. <laughs> but also I think that people should hear you know people in education's voices in in, in this kind of accent and not necessarily yeah. in some kind of received pronunciation. So yeah, yeah that's really yeah, good. Absolutely. And we haven't had Bob Dylan yet either. So that's the first thing oh, we've had. First 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 time we've had it. Um, oh, wow. Yes, yeah, so we like a bit of Bob Dylan. I was watching a documentary. Sorry, listener, we are still on a podcast here. We're not just chatting about Bob Dylan and, and the band uh, recently on BBC oh. Four. So if you haven't seen that, check that out, Mark. That's great as well. Quality, I will do. Anyway, wrestling it back. So obviously, you mentioned that the book is out now, uh, and the book's been out for a week or so. Can you just tell listeners a little bit about where they can find it, and maybe signpost listeners to website, social media, etc., where they can kind of reach out to you. Yeah, it's obviously available on Amazon. Uh, I know a lot of people don't particularly like buying from there. So if you want to go directly to the Routledge website, um, there is actually a 20% discount off it at the moment. I think that goes until uh, the start of September, I think. So there's still uh, plenty of time to, to go and get that from there. It should also be available in in, in bookshops, um, you know, WH Smiths and Waterstones and and. and the like for, for that. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, my handle is at Mr. Underscore English Teach. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty active on there. So if you want to send me any questions or anything like that as a follow up, I'd be very happy uh, to, to kind of get into discussions and, and debates and anything like that. Great stuff. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you, Mark, and have a great uh, rest of the summer. And I know that the book will do brilliantly because, I mean, just to kind of look at the, the luminaries that have, have endorsed it, and I've had a privilege of speaking to quite a few of these. So you've got Mary Myatt, you've got Alex Quigley. Um, side story, Alex Quigley doesn't listen to this podcast because he always ridicules me for it. Um, Jill Berry as well, who we've had on, you know, a couple of times. So, you know, it really has got high praise from a lot of people that I respect and I know that the listeners to the podcast do as well. So if you haven't got it already, listeners, uh, make sure you do go out and get that. And like I said, again, Mark, thanks for doing this, particularly, like I said, you know, in your summer holidays. Really, really appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Phil. Miller Snatter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Miller Snatter, just talking to teachers. 